Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. I want to thank our generous sponsors of the Parsha series for the year, Becky and Adi Katz and family, our dear friends in loving memory of Becky's father, of David Grossman, Lila Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. Thank you, Katzes, for your friendship, for your support, and for all that you do. This week we have the privilege of reading a double Parsha, the privilege, the responsibility, and the challenge of preparing for a double Parsha. We have been on the fast pass through Sefer Vayikra, this is our third double parsha in Sefer Vayikra, which makes it challenging to keep up with Shnai Mikra Ve'achatargam. It makes it challenging to be able to try to offer insights on both parshas each time in the parsha class. As always, our examination of these parshas are with a perspective on today, not simply parsha nut, not that there's anything wrong with that, but trying to glean from them the messages, the lessons that are timely, that are contemporary, and that are for us today. We begin on page 696 in the Arts Scroll. God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai, saying, When you go into the land, when you conquer, when you realize the dream of why I took you out of Egypt, not simply to be some secular political entity, but to enter a land of Israel and to forge a righteous and religious destiny, a covenantal community. What I want you to know and remember is, V'shav ta'aretz, the land has to rest. So even before I tell you to work it, I'm already telling you that it will need to rest. I want to begin with a, a few Rav Druks, three Rav Druks on this opening. We're going to see a lot of other insights as well, but this year we've been focusing on the beautiful insights of Rav Yisrael Meir Druk and his magnificent work, Eish Tamid. So Rashi tells us, Bahar Sinai, Says Rashi, what has become a famous uh, euphemism or comment when we want to say, what does one thing have to do with the other? We say, what in the world does Shemitah, the laws of Shemitah, a sabbatical year, what does that have to do with our Sinai? Why is that specifically introduced with the notion of that you got these laws, God spoke to you at our Sinai? Ask Rashi, all of mitzvahs are given. So perhaps every mitzvah in the Torah should be preceded by a reminder that God gave it to you at Sinai. Why is Shemitah different? Why is it unique? Why is Shemitah singled out? Says Rashi, quoting Chazal, because just like when it comes to Shemitah, the principles and the rules and the details, all of it was transmitted already at Sinai. So too we should know that just like the Torah here delineates in fine detail every aspect, every expectation of Shemitah, the same is true of every mitzvah. Just like Shemitah can be traced to Sinai, so too every mitzvah. Says Rashi, I'll add my own expansion of this interpretation, that later in Dvarim, Mishnah Torah, the repetition of the Torah, where many mitzvahs are expanded upon, we do not find an expansion of the mitzvah of Shemitah. Why? Because all the details were already given at Sinai. So the problem is, Noor Chaim HaKadosh asks this. He says, Rashi never really answered his question. Right? The question was, what in the world does Shemitah have to do with our Sinai? Ma inyan Shemitah etzel our Sinai? What does one thing have to do with the other? And the answer was, just like the details of Shemitah are from Sinai, so to all mitzvahs. 
We've spoken about this in the past. If you're listening to more than just the Shear this year, if you go back to old Parshios, I know we spoke about this in the past, but I want to look at a fresh pair of eyes and offer some new interpretations. So the Rechaim asks on Rashi, and Rav Druk doesn't quote the Rechaim, but asks the exact same question. Rashi didn't answer. The question is, if you're going to single out one mitzvah, as the paradigm, one mitzvah as the archetype, one mitzvah as the model, that just like its details came from Sinai, so too the details of all mitzvahs are from Sinai. Why specifically Shemitah? Why is Shemitah chosen above all other mitzvahs? So he says, in order to be able to answer this, in order to be able to understand what is the connection between Shemitah and Harsinai, why is Shemitah singled out as the model, we have to understand some features and factors about Harsinai. Why was the Torah given, given on Harsinai? Why wasn't the Torah transmitted and gifted to us on some other mountain? Why wasn't it given to us on a greater, a higher, a more impressive mountain? Maybe in Israel, Har Tavor, Har Carmel. So the Gemara learns, Gemara Miguel Dav Chavtas learns on the Pasuk in Tehillim, Lama Taratzdun Harim Gavdunim Ha'har Chemen Alakim L'Shavta Av Hashem Yishkan L'Netzach Kol Harim Gvon Malalu Bolof Ne'akadosh Baruch Hu Bikshim Menushitin Es Torah Le'em the Medrash Chazal and Gemara Megillah tell us that all the mountains came and competed before the Almighty. And each one said, I submit my application. I am submitting my resume. I don't know if it included a picture or didn't include a picture of itself, of the mountain. But said to God, let the Torah be given on me. Zelafi Govo, I am the tallest. Vizelafi Yo, and I am the most magnificent. Yatsabaskova, heavenly voice went out and said, Lama Teratsu Din Im Sinai. Why are you starting? Why are you creating conflict with Sinai? You know, you're all deficient compared to Sinai. Why? So you see, all you other mountains, maybe you're taller, and maybe you're more magnificent, maybe you're more beautiful, maybe you're more impressive, maybe the landscape, maybe the flora, maybe the rocking, whatever about, maybe you're more impressive, but you are deficient. You have a mum at the same time. Why? What is the mum? Says the Gemara. You see from here that someone who's arrogant on the outside, they could be good looking and handsome, gorgeous, pretty, attractive, wealthy, stylish, popular. Outside, externally, superficially, they could look perfect. But the person who acts with arrogance, the arrogant individual, that in itself is a Baal mum. If you learn the daf, today's daf in Yuma, just in today's daf, we learn the difference of Shaul and David. The Gemara concludes how important it is for a leader to look back at the yichus and find a deficiency. Because the person who has a perfect yichus, the individual who says, I descend from perfection, I'm perfect, my ancestors were perfect, my descendants will be perfect. Such an attitude and arrogance will breed corruption within their leadership. But the person who says, no, there's nothing, there's nothing perfect in my background. I have imperfection, I have struggle, I have challenge in my background, in my life, and undoubtedly in my kids. And therefore I'm humbled by the opportunity. Such an individual is who one should choose as a leader 
concludes the Gemara in today's daf. So the mountain. Harsinai said, who am I? Not me. I'm lowly. I'm not impressive. Not me. And the other mountains, who of course metaphorically in order to communicate this lesson, but the other mountains who boasted their perfection, God says, you have a mum. Mum, what was the mum? The mum was the arrogance. The Gemara Tainus Dav Zayin tells us, Why is Torah compared to water? Anyone thirsty, go to water. To teach us. When you, those listening outside of Florida who still have basements know this well, that if you have a leak, that water will find its way down where? To the basement. Water always flows to the lowest point. Water is humble and modest and flows to the lowest point. So too, Torah flows to the lowest point. When you view yourself as all high and mighty, when you view yourself as holy and now, when you view yourself as arrogant and perfect, the Torah flows down and away from you. But the more humble, the more modest you are, the Torah flows, flows towards you. And therefore... The lesson of Sinai is a lesson of humility, a prerequisite to Torah. We still haven't answered. What does that have to do with Shemitah? Moshe Kibbal Torah, Mi Sinai. We know the opening mission of Pirkei Avos. Summertime. It's Pirkei Avos season. And the opening mission is Moshe Kibbal Torah, Mi Sinai. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai. Moshe Zacha, Lekavos Atom Neshaya Anak, Fisha Ida Lava Torah, Hoish Moshe Anav Mikol Adam. Moshe learned from Har Sinai. It doesn't say Moshe Kibbal Torah, Bisinai. It doesn't say a geographic description. It does not give us the coordinates of where Moshe received the Torah. It doesn't say Moshe Kibel Torah Bisinai. It says Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. He received the Torah from the lesson of Harsinai that the prerequisite, the eligibility, what makes you appropriate to be the transmitter of Torah is humility. Is humility. So the uh, uh, Druk continues. That that was the message. That's what Hakadosh Baruch Hu. That's Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai. Moshe Kibbal Torah Meesh Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Ava Mehechan Lamar Ki Alav Lekavlas Hatorah. V'Limsosol Yisrael Belilas Vakeach Belilas Arev. From where did he learn that the way to receive Torah and the way to transmit it to pay it forward is without conflict, without fighting, without tension? Where did he learn that lesson? From Sinai, Misinai, not Bisinai, Misinai. So what does that have to do with Shemitah? The Archaim's question on Rashi, what do you mean, Sinai? just like Shemitah is from Sinai, so to all mitzvahs. But why was Shemitah chosen to communicate this lesson? So now Rav Druk says, You know what will bring you to humility and modesty? You know what makes a person feel vulnerable and fragile? Do you know what makes a person confront their mortality, which breeds humility? When a person is exiled, when they're on the run, when they feel dislocated. A forced sabbatical. You're not allowed to work. You have no certainty. You have no confidence. You don't know where your next paycheck, your income, where the next meal will come from. Azai margish ki ukarka, hu ki karka alehu samachu batuach tamid. Achshav nishmetas imitachas laraglav. Your certainty, your confidence, your income, your livelihood, your, your faith in the future has been swept from right under your feet. Basically, this past year, Corona, pandemic, when we live this uncertainty, when we can't predict or understand or control anything happening, 
that breeds a humility and a modesty, at least it's supposed to. It's meant to transform us. We should emerge from this forced year of a sabbatical. We worked from home. We lived at home. Many weren't able to work in this year. Small businesses were shuttered and struggled. A forced sabbatical. And what did we find? Humility and faith. And that's why Shemitah is chosen as the archetype, the model for the Torah being given at Sinai. Because Sinai is all about receiving the Torah, the prerequisite is humility. And what mitzvah in the entire Torah breeds that humility, what mitzvah breeds that emunah, that faith, it is the mitzvah of Shemitah. How could you be proud and arrogant when you can't even draw an income? When you're passive, when you're submissive, when you're not able to work that land and you're not able to know where your next paycheck will come from. How can you come out of a pandemic with an arrogance and with an ego? Person should be humbled. Person should be modest. Person should recognize that with all that we know and with all that we are in control of, there is so much more that we cannot control and that we don't know. And we should re-enter life and hopefully normalcy with a sense of humility. All that is Rav Druk number one, Ma'in and Shemitah Eitzel Har Sinai, Rashi answers, just like all of the laws come from Sinai, so too every mitzvah, all of its laws. Or Achayim wonders, what does that have to do with Shemitah? Still, why not teach all the details of Tefillin, all the details of Shabbos, all the details of Kashrus? Why choose Shemitah to express that just like all of its rules and details are from Sinai, so too all mitzvahs? Sort of joke answered, because the notion of Sinai is the notion of the prerequisite to Torah is humility. Let Torah leave its imprint. Let Torah project onto us a clean blank slate and not the opposite. All that's number one. Number two. Number two. I don't know how far we're going to get. Double Parsha. So much to say. Oi. Oi. But anyway, we'll try. So number two. Says Rav Druk. As we said, what's the pshat? Why is Shemitah chosen? The Jewish people received the Torah at Har Sinai. And furthermore, Chazal and the Mechilta tell us that the Torah was only given to those who eat and rely on the Mun. There's a direct connection between the miracle that the Mun fell for the people all 40 years. To the fact that we merited to be able to receive the Torah. What does one thing have to do with the other? Why is the fact that he ate the man? Let's say you don't have an appetite. I have a son that you can't get him to eat. You can't bribe him. You can't beg him. You can't pay him. You got to spoon feed him. He, I'm not sure where he comes from, but he hates food. So let's say he was in the midbar and he wasn't in the mood for man. He didn't eat. Why would he not be eligible? Why would he not be a candidate to receive the Torah? Why was the Torah reserved? So the answer is, What it means, means to the people, not necessarily who literally ate the man, if you didn't have an appetite for the man, or you didn't have an appetite at all, you could still receive the Torah. Ochle Amman is a symbol, is a signal. Those who were the Ochle Amman were the ones who through the desert lived with Amuna. They knew that everything is from Hashem. We are in this world, we serve Him. He is in control, He is in charge, He choreographs, He curates everything in our lives. He owns and he operates everything in this world. And whatever gifts, whatever blessings we have, they are on loan. They are not part of our permanent collection. And who knew that? The Ochle Haman. Because when you work the field and then it grows, it produces, and you harvest and you eat, you also are relying on the goodness, the graciousness of God. You're also relying on his reign. But 
you can easily mistakenly fall prey to kochi v'otsam yadi. You can mistakenly think, it is my ingenuity, my creativity, my hard work. But when the man descends from heaven, you know clearly as day that you are relying exclusively on the kindness, the graciousness of the Rebbeinu Shalom of the Almighty. So what it means, means the Torah is only given to those who live daily with Amuna, who recognize every single day where their next meal is really coming from, whom they rely upon, who is the source of all they have. And therefore the same is true over here. The same is true over here. They weren't in the pursuit of more. They weren't trying to accumulate more material things. They weren't trying to earn and get more money. They weren't staying at work even later in order to have more and more and more. Their focus was exclusively dedicated to coming close to Hashem. And their Parnassah was taken care of from above. And they saw it and they recognized and they appreciated His gift in their life. And when a person comes to this definitive knowledge, we can get to that level of Yes, we earn a paycheck. Yes, we work in order to draw our income, but we can see the income as falling from heaven like the man. Because all that I work and all that I accumulate and all that I have is not the essence of my life. It doesn't define me. So think about what Shemitah was. You took the farmer. And this farmer was buying more and more fields and creating the technology in order to be able to plow and plant and harvest. And this farmer was killing it and raking it in and doing phenomenally well. And then every seventh year, the farmer is commanded and told, Stop! Interrupt your life. The business you're growing, this industry you're conquering, this corporation, you're ready for your IPO, you're going to go public, you're going to kill it. You got to cash in, stop, take the year off. Freeze, suspend all activity. Ah, do you lose all momentum? What will it look like afterwards? What's going to happen? Too bad. Show your emuna. Spend a year not trying to build and grow and pursue and, and uh, derive income. Spend a year focused on your faith, nourishing not your body, but your neshama. And the result, the conclusion, the impact of that sabbatical, of that year of Shemitah, not a paid sabbatical, mind you. A sabbatical of faith is growing in Amuna like the Ochle Haman. And therefore you can explain Shemitah Just like the Torah is only given to the Ochle Haman, who comes closest to reenacting and reproducing the faith of the Ochle Haman? The farmer who rests in Shemitah. And I must tell you that we're not reading about ancient history. There is a mass movement and we should have amazing admiration for farmers in Israel in our time who continue to obey. Next year is a Shemitah year in the cycle. We are coming upon a Shemitah year. And our farmers, our holy brothers and sisters, farmers in Israel, increasingly so because there are um, more organizations raising money to help support the farmers in order to enable them, in order to stop and rest for a year, to put their business on hold, to take that sabbatical year. And their emunah, their faith is tremendous. Their commitment to keep this mitzvah alive, a mitzvah that we're told is the source of our merit to inhabit the land and please God to experience it in peace, comes from the faith of these farmers, not ancient history, but yet still today. So pshat number two in Rav Druk is, what do you mean by Shemitah Eitzel Arsina? You know what the connection of Shemitah and Arsina is? Shemitah is an exercise in emunah, and Arsina was only, the Torah was only given to those 
who received it with Emuna. Lastly, very quickly, because I want to move on, is a pshat from Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav quotes Rav Moshe. What does it mean, smichas mitzvah shmita lar Sinai? Why is shmita chosen as the model of its details, its rules, its principles are all given from Sinai? So too every mitzvah. So said Rav Moshe the following. Mitzvah shmita yeshmakum gadol adam shiyomar ki rotzo lekaima shikain hu rak marviach mizeh b'makum lavod esakarka l'ziagel l'zameitz mimlachta yoshev hu bebeso hari muvtach shetelo atvua l'shalashanam b'lishi b'razek klal b'lishi yavod azek klal said Rav Moshe the opposite of the last interpretation said Rav Moshe maybe the farmer is running for shmita you know why because we're going to read in a moment. We're going to look at this Pasuk in a moment. But if the farmer comes and asks, God, what will I eat in the seventh year? If I'm not plowing and planting and harvesting, if I'm not working my field, if I'm not drawing a paycheck, what will I eat in that seventh year? My family will go hungry, says the Teradaginisht. Don't worry. In the sixth year, you're going to grow enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. The sixth year will produce enough for three years, so you have nothing to worry about. So says Rav Moshe, what does the farmer say? Unpaid sabbatical? Paid sabbatical. Not only do I have a paid sabbatical for my seventh year, my eighth year will produce double because in the sixth year I grew enough for six, seven, and eight. And I'm allowed to work the eighth year. So the farmer says, this is fantastic. Paid sabbatical. So therefore this mitzvah, I'm not doing it for God. I'm doing it for me. Take off a year. Psh. Finally, I'll learn guitar. I'll work on my golf, golf game. Maybe I'll take up the dafyomi. Says the farmer, fantastic for me. The farmer will be tempted to fulfill Shemitah, not as an expression of loyalty and devotion to God, but for his own interests. Therefore the Torah says, no. This is not man-made. The farmer didn't produce this for himself because it's for his or her benefit, but it's from Hashem. It comes from our Sinai. This is what Hashem wants from us, and it should be the farmer's mentality. The farmer should not say paid sabbatical, good for me. The farmer should say paid sabbatical because I am fulfilling the will of Hashem. This is what Hashem wants from me. And says Rav Moshe, based on this, that's why, that's why, let's move over to the next Pasuk. That's why the Torah says, Sheishanim Pasuk Gimel, Sheishanim Tizra Sadecha. Six years plant your field, Sheishanim Tizmor Karmecha. Six years you should... Uh, collect from your vine. Prune your vineyard and then gather its crop. And says Rav Moshe something very, very powerful here. Notice the Torah does not simply say, take a sabbatical year. The Torah precedes it by saying, six years work the land and then take the sabbatical. So the earth needs the rejuvenation and the renewal. But a full year, 12 months of complete inactivity, that's a long time. What's going on over here? And why does the Torah introduce it with non-Shemitah years? Just tell me Shemitah years. And what if you want to take Shemitah year every year? Let's say you say, you know, if God likes Shemitah, if one year of passiveness and submissiveness is good, then I'll live it for a lifetime. I'll collect staka, let people take care of me, put me on Tomchei Shabbos. And if not working is such a maila, if not working is such a noble goal, I'll not work ever. So says Rav Moshe, a very important lesson. And I'm going to read to you Rav Moshe. Here's the translation of Rav Moshe Feinstein's words. He says, quote, A person must know that even when he works the land during the six years, this also constitutes the divine will because the mitzvah of settling the land. Don't think that Shemitah, when you're passive, that's when you're fulfilling the will of Hashem only. The Sheshanim Tizra Sadecha, Sheshanim Tizmor Karmecha, that too is the will of Hashem. 
Working is not a concession. Working is a value. Hard work is a Jewish and a Torah value. Six years of work is a Torah value. Now, Ramosha says it particularly in the land of Israel, because that's Yishuv Haaretz. The farmer who works the land is Yishuv Haaretz. That farmer is settling the land. That work is exactly what Hashem wills from us. But even outside the land of Israel, the six years of work, that too is a religious principle. It is a religious value. Similarly, we see this in the Aseris Adibros with Shabbos. What if I want to keep Shabbos all week long? I say, you know, Shabbos is so great. Shabbos made olam haba. I'll tell you what, I'll keep Shabbos all week long. Says Rav Moshe, that's a violation of what, the will of Hashem, the Ratzon Hashem. Hashem told us, no. When do you deserve a Shabbos? After you worked. Six years work, you get Shemitah. Six days work, you get Shabbos. The work is not a concession. So the fact that we need to have food to eat, the work is a value. Other religions, Christians, saw work as a punishment. They saw it as a necessary evil, as a concession to our mortality and our frailty, but not our sacred Torah. Our Torah taught us that work is a value. How do you know that, by the way? How do you know that? Who did not need to work? Who's infinite and omnipotent and never needs to work for a moment? and yet is described as having worked for six days before he rested, the Ribbonu Shalom. And if work were not a value, why would the Torah describe Hashem as creating, ki'ilu working? So the Mishnah Navas tells us, Ehovah Samalacha, love work. Not tolerate work, but love work. Because work is a value. Work is a value, and we grow and we enhance ourselves from the work. So don't only embrace the Shemitah of our Parsha, but the message and the value to lean into that work and to realize the work we do to conquer Hashem's world, to understand it, to serve it, to serve the people in it. That work, that hard work, it too is a religious activity that we're doing. It is not a concession, and we should be proud of it. Moving right along. Torah tells us, Torah tells us, Bishnasa Yovel Hazos, Tashuvu Ish El Achuzoso. Where am I looking for? I lost the Pasuk. I'm looking for Next Pasuk, I'm sorry. Yudal. According to the, this is a law that the um, land goes back. Tashuvu Ish El Achuzoso. In the 50th year, in the Yovel year, everything goes back, which is a funny way to drive an economy. Imagine if so, all sales were all real estate transactions implicitly had a condition, a limit, that in the 50th year, it goes back. The exception is in a walled city. Why in a walled city? I have a lot to say, but we're going to save it for another time, not for now. Why in a walled city, after one year, do you have no right to take it back? Is a walled city different than other cities? What is the symbolism, the significance of a walled city? Not for now. But in Mishpar Shanim, sorry, the Torah told you, the Chisim Kurim Kala in Pasuk Yedal, when you make a sale to the, your fellow, you make a purchase from the person, Al-Tonu Ish Es Achiv. What do the words Al-Tonu mean? Al-Tonu means do not aggravate, do not aggrieve, do not take advantage. We have this in the laws of business conduct. Ona'a, the prohibition of Ona'a is you're not allowed to extort, you can't exploit, you cannot charge more than a sixth. The laws of Ona'a tell us that if it's less than a sixth more than the relative value, then it's a good binding sale. If it is exactly a sixth, then it's a binding sale, but you give back what the overcharge. If it's more than a sixth, the whole sale is null and void. The prohibition of Ona'a, you're not allowed to charge more. We also have the notion of Ona'a's dvarim. 
You're not allowed to bully. You cannot aggravate. You cannot extort with your words the notion of Ona'a's Dvarim. What does Ona'a mean here in this context? And moreover, why is Ona'a specifically given when it comes to when it comes to these laws of Shemitah and Yovel. So Rashi says, Altonu, don't aggravate, don't aggrieve. Zu onaos mamon. This is the prohibition of extortion with money. Don't overcharge, don't overcharge. Betchilis ha-parsha kasher nizka bar back in Rav Druk. Nizka sharashi ma'inin Shemitah l'arsinai. Rashi already said, what's the connection? Va'afanun, so we're going to now ask the same thing here. Ma'inin onaa etzel Yovel. Why are we using Yovel as the backdrop as the platform to remind ourselves of the prohibition of onaa of overcharging financially. So it says Rav Druk the following: Because the laws of Yovel teach me that when the person sells their land to another, they need to know that this is not in perpetuity; it's not indefinitely. So when a realtor was helping a transaction, the realtor would have to know what year are we in Shemitah. So if this were year one, this property is worth a million dollars, but we're in year 30 of Yovel. And therefore, there's only 20 years left that you can use the house before it's returned to its original owner. So you're only going to pay the value of the use of the home for 20 years. So what that means, this is a challenging economy to follow. What that means is there is a relative value to real estate that fluctuates depending on what year of Yovel it is. If you know that all property returns in the 50th year, then when you purchase a home, you only have however many years are left until the next Yovel to use it, and that creates a relative value to that property. And therefore, it's very easy to come to overcharge. So therefore, suggests Rav Druk, that's why specifically here, in the laws of Yovel, in the laws of the home returning, the Torah says, you need to be vigilant, you need to be scrupulous, you need to be honest and have integrity in business. When you sell, calculate and include how many years are left, get the price accurate, get the price proper, and do not overcharge, because that would be Ona'a. That would be Ona'a. However, we have a problem. Because the Gemara Kedushin Daf Membeis tells us a principle about Ona'a. That ain't Ona'a lekarkaos. When we talk about overcharging, sixth, exactly a sixth, more than a sixth, when we talk about overcharging, we're talking about metatalin, movable objects. We're talking about, I overcharge for the watch, the piece of jewelry. I overcharge for the piece of furniture. We're talking about movable property. But property, by definition, has a relative value. So how do you determine what's ona'a? For example, all of New York and California are moving to South Florida. So the, high, the home prices have skyrocketed. They've gone through the roof. If I would have told you what price the homes are going for today, if I would have told that to you a year and a half ago, you would have said that's insane, that's impossible, will never happen. Because you didn't predict a pandemic. You didn't predict some challenging political leadership in those other states. You didn't predict what would be taxes and so on. So you didn't imagine. The price is relative. So eno no le carcos. So why specifically in the laws of Shemitah would Rashi say when it says losono isha amito that losono is onas mamon? Onas mamon doesn't apply to karka. It doesn't apply to land. Why teach its law specifically with Yovel, which is all about land? Great question. 
If we were in person, I'd say, do you follow? But I'm just looking at myself. I'd much rather be looking at you. Says Rav Druk, let's go back to the theme. The theme that permeates, the theme that is pervasive throughout our entire Parsha is the theme of Emuna and Bitachon. The notion that everything comes from above, it's not ours, it's on loan. The farmer takes a sabbatical to remember he's not in control, she's not in control. All that we have is on loan, is from God. The homes exchange, they go back to their original owner, because all that we have goes back to the original owner, the Almighty. The entire parsha and all of its laws, Bahar, is an exercise in Amuna and Bitachon, a reminder that we are stewards over what belongs to Hashem, but it's not truly ours. If a person truly believes that all that they have comes from above and it's not ours, that it's just Hashem, and if you say, I need to put in my effort, I have to take my initiative, but you know what? I can do that in the extreme. It's not going to bring more money. If God is determined that I'm supposed to make X this year, I need to work hard enough to justify God giving me X. But if I work 16, 18, 20 hours a day, if God wanted me to make 2x, couldn't he have made me be able to earn it within the reasonable 8 or 10 hours of working a day? Why 16 or 18 hours? So a person who puts in too much initiative, too much ishtadlis, is lacking faith in God. Equally and opposite, a person who puts in too little ishtadlis, someone says, God, if you've determined I'm supposed to make x a year, I'll work an hour a day, let me get my x. That's not reasonable. That's not normative. You need to work the normative amount of time it would take to earn X. And therefore, you have to find the sweet spot of hishtadlus, of initiative. So at the core of the prohibition of Ona'a, also our parsha includes the prohibition of ribis, of charging interest to a fellow Jew, is that you have to have emuna. If you know that your income comes from God, you would never exploit others. You would never charge interest to others. You would never overcharge others. You would act with integrity and honesty, and you would understand that I need to do what I need to do, but my parnasa really comes from Hashem. I need to take my initiative. I need to be creative. I have to make my efforts. But in the end of the day, it's all Hashem. So therefore, I'll never make more by violating His will. I'll never make more by cutting corners. I'll never make more by taking advantage of his other children. Says Rav Juk, the reason these mitzvahs are all intertwined and they're given here is because they are all to reinforce the same theme. The theme of our parsha is Amuna and Bitachon. The theme of our parsha is not just lip service to God. We talk about this all the time in our Amuna Shir on Wednesdays. We talk all the time. There are people lip service. They shuckle back and forth and they say, Baruch Hashem, Amir Hashem, Chasta Hashem, thank you God and God's help of God's will. But you know, it's easy to talk with Amuna on the lips. It's much harder to put it in practice. Are you ruthlessly competitive? Do you take unfair advantage? Are you a ruthless business person negotiating? What happened to all the Amuna and Bitachon? The place in which our Amuna and Bitachon manifests and expresses itself, the litmus, the metric through which to measure how we're doing in our faith in God is our attitude towards money. Towards money. We have to take our initiative. You cannot be passive. We have to take initiative. However, if we recognize that it's all from Hashem, we'd never cut corners, we'd never cheat, we'd never steal, we'd never charge interest, and we would never overcharge another. It's not for nothing, says Rav Druk. The very first question we will be asked when we ascend on high, Gemara Shabbos Lamed Alf tells us, after 120 years, when we come before the Beisdin Shamayla, when we come before the heavenly court, we will be asked a series of questions, nobody can escape it. And the first question we'll be asked is, Nasata Nasata Did you do your business faithfully? 
Were you honest? Did you have integrity? Not did you learn Dafyomi or how long was your Shmon Esrei or did you shuckle? Did you finish the Sefer Tehillim? Those questions will be asked too and one should be engaged in all of those virtuous activities. They're wonderful. We support them. We teach them. We encourage them. But the first question, the very first question, did you have honesty? Did you have integrity? Or did you cut corners? Did you overcharge? Did you extort? Did you, did you act faithfully in business? Nasata v'natata be'amuna. That is our mission. And that is what the Mishnah in Avos teaches us, Gemara Nadarim as well. Rebbe Omer, Rebbe Yudanasi said, What is the proper path that a person should pursue for themselves? What is the way to live life? What should your bumper sticker or motto be? And answer, Rebbe, Rebbe Yudanasi, Koshi teferes lo seha, v'teferes lo min ha'adam. Whatever will bring you glory, whatever is, reflect properly, whatever will reflect well on you. And Rav Druk explains that to mean business-wise. If others will testify, if others want to take you as your word, if others will say that you are honest and have integrity, that is the ultimate statement of who you are. So again, so beautiful. Really, we've said many, many interpretations, but they're all, if you condense them, they're all to the same. Emunah and bitachon. This is the test. The farmer in Shemitah and the business person, when they set the price, when the business person, when they're tempted to charge ribbis to a fellow Jew, this is all the litmus test of where is our faith, how strong it is. Now within this law, we're back in Perchafei uh, Pasachaf. Now continue top of page seven hundred. So the farmer will say, "I told you this before." If the farmer will say, "What am I going to eat in the seventh year?" What am I going to eat? We're not going to sow. We're not going to gather. You told me to be passive. You told me to be submissive. You told me not to work my land. So what will I eat? So the Torah says, Don't worry. In the sixth year, you'll produce for three years, for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. This is one of the pieces of evidence that the Torah is not written by man, but the Torah is written by God. Because if you were a man, a woman, a committee of people, and you sat down to write a Torah that you were going to pass off as if it came from God, would you include within it promises you couldn't keep? Never. If you were going to write a book and pretend that you were God, you would not make predictions you couldn't keep, which the Torah does. The Torah, in the laws of Kashus, the Torah told us, the Torah told us, all of the animals that only have split hooves, chew its cud, fin, scales, the Torah specifically delineated. Well, what happens if you find the Torah was wrong? Species beyond what the Torah told us. Then you're going to throw out the whole book, and yet the Torah took that risk. Why? Because it comes from God, not man. And here too, the Torah makes a promise. In the sixth year, it'll grow enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. Why would the Torah make that promise? Why in the world would the Torah tell us if it could not back it up? It must be the Torah is written by Hashem, not by man. But what a peculiar question. Man nochal. What are we going to eat? What do you mean, v'chisomru man nochal? If you will say, what will we eat? If you will say, what will we eat? So... I'll share with you another from Rav Druk, and then we're going to see many, many other interpretations. It's not only Rav Druk, don't worry. So Rav Druk says the following. What do you mean, man nochal? Torah doesn't waste one letter, one space, one vowel. And why is the Torah putting in the hypothetical conversation? A hypothetical conversation that if you will say, what will I eat? Don't worry, the sixth year will produce enough for three years. Since when does the Torah include hypothetical conversations? If you'll say, this will be the answer, what are you taking up real estate with that? 
So he quotes the Sefer Noam Elimelech. I saw many Svarim quote this Noam Elimelech, the Heligar of Elimelech of Lezhinsk, the Heligar of Noam Elimelech. And he says the following, when a Kodesh Baruch Hu created the world, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a world in which he created sparks and pipes for the blessings of Hashem to descend. Only, in other words, the default is that Hashem's bracha descends upon us. And if we're unworthy, it clogs up the pipeline. If we're unworthy, it slows down the connection. Our improper thoughts, our lack of faith, our arrogance and ego, it creates a barrier, a blockage between the blessings that are meant to descend from heaven and our ability. And that's what it means. That's what it means. A person should never say, what will I eat? You have to walk through life working hard to have what to eat, but also with the assumption and the confidence that Hashem will always provide for you what to eat. So based on this normally Melech, that the reason the Torah includes this hypothetical conversation is to teach us that never fall prey, never ask this question. It should never arise, it should never come to your mind. And this is the Pshat, therefore. Why does Hashem have to vitzivisi as birchasi? This is how the normal Melech reads this. The Heligar Reveli Melech reads the following. Normally the flow just comes directly. Hashem doesn't need to renew it. He doesn't need to um, replenish the supply. It just flows naturally. That is the default. Like a parent to a child, Hashem wants us to be happy and He supplies us with bracha. But if you're going to ask manuchal, if you're going to stop and wonder, if you're going to doubt, if you're going to ask, then Now Hashem says, I need to work. You created a blockage, a stoppage. You created a barrier. So now, I need to overcome it. I need to unblock it. That's the interpretation of the normal Melech. That's really Melech of Lezhinsk. But I'll share with you a second interpretation. Another interpretation of how to understand it. Based on the following. A totally different way of understanding it. That when the Torah includes this hypothetical, it's not reflecting a weakness. This is not something to avoid. This is not a hypothetical of a people who are deficient in any way. The opposite. This very question is a reflection of the strength of their amuna. How is manochal a strength of amuna? How is manochal show that they actually had great amuna? So listen, because alkein ancient ilasam ha'im nochal. Ella manuchal. They didn't say, will we have what to eat? Okay, listen, God, these laws of Shemitah. I know we said Nasa Vanishma. I know we said we're in. I know we said tell us and we'll do. But this one's a little iffy. Ha'im nochal, will we have what to eat? That's not what happened. This hypothetical conversation is not ha'im, will we have? It's manuchal. What's the difference between ha'im and ma? Ha'im is, I'm worried. Ha'im is, I doubt you. 
Ha'im is, will we have? Manochal means Hashem, I have no doubt. You have my full confidence. It's kind of like me. Late in the day when my stomach growls and I text home and I say, what's for dinner? I don't say, do we have dinner? Will there be dinner tonight? I say, what's for dinner? Now, again, maybe I should be making dinner, should be picking up dinner. Let's not get into that. I text and I say, what's for dinner? So that's the question that they were asking. They weren't asking, ha'im nochal, will we eat? They were asking, ma nochal, what will we eat? This isn't a reflection of weakness or deficiency. It's a reflection of emuna and strength. They never had a doubt. Not for a heartbeat, not for a moment. They never doubted that God would provide food, even in observance of Shemitah. All they wanted to know was, Manuchal. Of course you're going to provide. We're just curious. What? We're just curious how. We don't have a doubt about if. We're just curious how. And that's the question of Ma. And Hashem says, Oh, Gishmak. You have such confident faith in me that you say Ma instead of Im. I'll tell you what, in the sixth year, it's going to grow enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. And therefore, you will be taken care of. And that is the answer to your question. Then the Torah tells us, Perak Hafei Pasuk Chav Gimel. The land cannot be sold in perpetuity. God says, why? Because the land is mine. You are Gerem and Toshavim. You are strangers and residents with me. This is reminiscent or it should be. Who said Gerem and Toshav Anochi Imachem? Avram Avinu. Our great father, our great patriarch, Avram Avinu said, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem, when the Bnei Ephron, when the Bnei Ches were selling the land, he says to Ephron Achiti, he says to them, I am a resident and a stranger, and we've said many times before, Rabbi Salavechik sees within here the mission statement of the Jew. We are a Ger v'toshav. On the one end, we are residents. On the one end, we participate in, we contribute to the society in which we live, but we remain strangers and apart. We remain different. We remain different. Through our history, too, t- sometimes we placed an overemphasis on the ger, sometimes an overemphasis on the toshav, sometimes we were too estranged, and sometimes we were too assimilated. And we need to find that balance, but how to participate in, contribute towards, draw from society, but without ever forgetting that we're different, that we're strangers, that we're apart. And that's how Avram Avinu set out on his journey, and we, his progeny, carry that mission. That's what the Torah is telling us here. Atem imadi. We are to be the Ger Toshav. The Helig of Bnei Yisachar, the Rav Tzvi Yali Melech Shapira of Dinov, the Helig of Bnei Yisachar says, Ki Gerim V'toshavim Atem Imadi. The land never goes, it's never yours. You're all coming into the land, you're all mine, you and the land. That when the Jewish people settle in the Holy Land, Kodesh Baruch Hu, Gama Kodesh Baruch Hu Toshav Ba. When we settle the land, Hashem is with us in the land. And God forbid when we're exiled from the land and we live in the diaspora, Hashem is with us in Galus. And that's therefore what it means. Ki gerim v'toshavim atem. Whether you are gerim because you're settled comfortably in the land of Israel, or whether you are toshavim, sorry, whether you are toshavim because you're settled in the land of Israel, or you're gerim because you are in exile, imadi. You need to know Jew, wherever you are, you're with me. That's how the Hedlik of Bnei understands it. When the Jew is eligible to be in our land, when we are toshavim, living comfortably in our land, God says, I'm with you. When you are Gerim, if you are in exile and living dispersed among the other nations, either way, Gerim and Toshavim, Imadi. Says Hashem, I'm with you either way. The Helig Bnei Saskar, Imadi. Hashem is with us. Hashem goes into Galus, Hashem goes into Galus together with us. <clears throat> but another interpretation, third, first was Avram Avinu of Salavechik, 
Second is the Hedek Bnei Soscha. I'm going to tell you a third. The Tzadik Raborach of Mezbuz. He says the following. He says, In Bnei Yisrael, Machzikim is Atzma Ba'olam Azekegerim. If we see ourselves in this world as only temporarily, we're only here temporarily, we are strangers in this world. Our body, we're strangers. The true, the authentic, the real us is the neshama. The neshama wants to dwell in perpetuity, indefinitely, in the world to come, basking in the glow of the Shekhinah. We are here in this world temporarily, we are here in this world as Geirim. When we see ourselves as Geirim Toshavim in this world, on the one hand in this world we're Toshavim, we're residents, Hashem put the Neshama in the guf, on the one hand for however many years we merit to be in this world, then however many years it is, we're Toshavim, we're residents in this world for however many years He puts us here. But we remain Geirim simultaneously, we're only here temporarily. So when are you Imadi? When we are Geirim V'toshavim Atem, then we are Imadi, then we are with Hashem. This will be our last insight on Bahar. Torah tells us, because we have the Chukosai, not that we're ending early. Says the Torah, if your brother becomes impoverished and falls, falters in your proximity, strengthen him. Whether they're Ger or Tosha, Imach, so that you can live together with him. You have to strengthen him so you can live together with him. I think last year, two years ago, we went in depth in this Pasuk. I'm not going to repeat everything we saw. Shem Atov, an incredible Bashem Tov. Why Imach? It happened in your proximity. You're supposed to respond to it. We saw many, many interpretations of Achicha, Imach. I don't think we said the one I'm going to tell you right now. And therefore, it's an addition to the previous year. Torah tells us this law, that if they falter, that you need to step up. And the Medrash comments on this Pasuk. The Medrash of Vayikar Rabban tells us that that's what David HaMelech said, Ashrei Maskil Eldal. Fortunate is the thoughtful person, thoughtful is the one who's thought, sorry, fortunate is the one, Ashrei, Maskil Eldal. Dal is the poor person, Maskil is the enlightened person, fortunate is the enlightened one, the thoughtful one, towards the one who's wretched, towards the one who's Dal, the one impoverished. There's a sefer called Shevet Sofer. Shari Simcha Shevet Sofer Parshas Bahar. It's on page Ayin Vav in the Sefer. Shari Simcha Shevet Sofer. It's written by Reb Simcha Bunim Sofer, and he explains the Medrash here is the following: Why does the Torah say Umata Yado Imach? What does it mean? Umata, they falter with you. So according to the straightforward interpretation, it means, and the way the Medrash understands it is that you have to look at him as unstable with you. You have to commiserate with their suffering. You have to realize that. You don't just simply have sympathy as an outsider, you have empathy. What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Sympathy is to watch you suffer and say, boy, I feel bad for you. Empathy is to say, I'm suffering with you. I am feeling, I am suffering, I am together with you. I'm not an outsider. And that's why the Torah tells us, You need to strengthen yourself with him. So it says the Shevet Sofer, let me read it to you inside. Ashrei maskil adal. Nearly, toim tsoi lovali de kiyam mitzvah stuck a karoi, haide she is bonin vietzar bedaito as ma'amado umatzavo shalaani, viyavin lenafsho. The proper way to give stucka is not just to say, I'll send you a check, let me venmo, let me zell, get out of my face, leave me alone, don't harass me. It's to say, I want to feel your pain. I want to know what you're going through. I don't just want to feel sympathy for you, I want to experience empathy with you. Now that takes thoughtfulness. It takes effort. It takes calculation. 
And that's what David HaMelech meant. Ashrei maskil el dal. Maskil. Ashrei. Fortunate is the one who's maskil, who's calculating strategic, thoughtful el dal, and says, hmm, this person, how can I feel their pain? How can I feel empathy, not just sympathy? Omru Chazal, Rabbi said, the tells us, Davav, says Rav Shimon, Rav Simcha Bunim Sofer, Agra Tata'anisa Tzidkasa. The Gemara says the reward for a fast day is that you gave tzedakah on the fast day. We have a minag. The minag is to give tzedakah on the fast day. And the minag is to give specifically what you didn't spend on the meals of that fast day. Because it's a fast day, you should give tzedakah. What does the Gemara mean? What does the Gemara mean? The reward for a fast day is that you gave tzedakah. And moreover, I were out of time, I didn't get to Bechut Kosai. And moreover, the, the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, that you should give tzedakah, the calculation of the meals that you gave up. Why? So says the Shevet Sofer so beautifully. Because when will you feel the plight and the pain of the poor person who has nothing to eat? Which day will you feel that? A fast day. So when your stomach growls on that fast day, and when you say, boy, I wish I could eat. I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I want to eat. My energy is so low. All I need is a cup of coffee. Say to yourself, you know, I only feel that on the fast day. But the poor person feels that every day. So the experience of going through that pain should drive you to therefore want to relieve that suffering and pain for the other. Ashrei maskil el dal. Ashrei, fortunate is the one who's thoughtful and calculating and wants to feel with empathy the pain. When your stomach growls, when you have low energy, when you're exhausted and have that massive migraine because you haven't eaten on that fast day, don't think, woe is me, say to yourself, wow, there are people out there who feel this every day. Be driven to give tzedakah on that fast day because that fast day has given you a window and insight into how they live. There's a story about a uh, Rav, a Rosh Hashiv, who went to go collect tzedakah from a wealthy person in freezing cold weather. And he knocked on the door and the uh, butler answered and he said, I'm here to see Mr. So-and-so. And they said, come inside. He said, no, I want to see Mr. So-and-so right here at the front door. So the butler said, no, come in. And he refused and back and forth and back and forth. And finally the wealthy man came. And he said, why don't you come inside? I have a hot fire burning. We can be comfortable. We'll sip a hot beverage. And I'm happy to hear what you need. I'm happy to give generously. And the man said, no, I insist on speaking to you out here. And the wealthy individual didn't understand why until finally the rabbi, the Rosh Hashiva, explained. He said, because if I come ask you in the comfort next to a fire, snuggled under a blanket while sipping a hot chocolate, it's one thing. But if I come to collect for poor people who are struggling and suffering in the cold, I want to have the conversation out here in the cold. I want to shake and shiver. I want to know what it's like to be cold. I want you to know what it's like to be cold when we are considering how much to give in order to relieve the suffering, the cold of other people. Let's move to Parshas Bechukosai. Perch of Gimel, Perch of rather, Pasach Gimel. If you follow my decrees and you observe all my commandments and you fulfill them, I will make it rain in the right time and I'll give you the land and the trees will grow fruit. Says the Helege Imrechaim, the vision of Rebbe, you know we weren't going to go double partial without an Imrechaim. Says the Imrechaim, in Bechukosai Telechu, Ves Mitzvosai Tishmoru, Lashen Hamtana, Tishmoru. Tishmoru, whenever you see the word Tishmoru, like Shmir Shabbos, V'aviv Shamaras Hadavar, the Aptorav says this on V'aviv Shamaras Hadavar, but the truth is, many say, the word Shamar, to be Shomer, doesn't just mean to safeguard, to protect, it means to anticipate, it means to look forward to, it means to long for. V'azai v'asisim osam. So therefore says the Heilige Vishnitzer, the Heilige Imrachaim, he says, Im kosai teilechu, if you care about what I want, says God, if you want to walk in my way, you care about my values, my system, my laws. Es mitzvosai tishmoru. It doesn't mean you safeguard my mitzvos. He's answering a question that he doesn't explicitly ask. 
Why does it say mitzvosay tishmoru v'asisimosam? What is v'asisimosam adding to mitzvosay tishmoru? What is doing them adding to observing my mitzvos? What does one thing have to do with the other? So says the Vishnitzer, you know what? Tishmoru is not talking about doing them. Tishmoru is not talking about observing them. Tishmoru is talking about looking forward to them. Do you long for the opportunity to do mitzvos? Do you count down with anticipation, with excitement? Or, oh, the mitzvah's coming. I can't believe I have to do it. I hate it. it costs me money, costs me time, costs me effort, interrupts my life. What is your attitude? So listen to the words of the Vishnitzer. Loshon hamtano, shetichaku utitzapu lekiyem ha-mitzvah. Ve'azai v'asisim osam. Ye'nechshem lachem asher atem asisim zos me'atzmachem. Ki ga'aguachem goreru es kiyem ha-mitzvah. When tishmoru, when you long for it, v'asisim, it's as if you've already begun to do it. When you're looking forward, when you're excited, when you're counting down, it's as if you've already begun to perform it. It's already as if you're doing it. And that's how he understands why Tishmoru on the one end and Vasisim Osam isn't that redundant. Why is it repeated? Rodruk also asks the same question and also deals with the same issue. First of all, why Bechukosai Telecho? I thought, Schar Mitzvah We're not supposed to experience reward for doing mitzvahs in this world. So why does Rashi say, Bechukosai Telecho? Yachal Zakiyim Mitzvah, Kishu Omer Mitzvah, Tishmaru Harikiyim Mitzvah, Amor, Mani Mekayim Bechukosai Telecho, Shti Amelim Batora. It doesn't mean that you are performing, it would be redundant. It means you have to do mitzvahs, but it also means that you have to toil in mitzvahs, toil on mitzvahs, and then you will earn reward. But what happened to not getting reward? What happened to not getting reward in this world? So therefore, he says the following. There are some mitzvahs that we don't receive reward in this world for the mitzvah. Learning of Torah, we don't receive reward in this, mitzvah, in this world. Learning Torah, we, we get in the world to come. So what is the part that we get rewarded in this world, says Rav Druk? The attitude, the longing. This is just like the Imre Chaim. They go together beautifully. This inside of Rav Druk and the Imre Chaim we just saw. Shetea Melem Batorah means, do I learn Torah superficially? Do I get away with the bare minimum? Do I not give it my all? Am I not really investing myself? Am I willing to toil? Am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to put my heart and soul into it? It's not just the learning of Torah, it's the Yegiyah and the Amelus. It's the attitude of Torah for which I get the reward. The learning of Torah, the reward is in the next world. But the attitude towards Torah learning, do I long, do I look forward, am I invested, am I willing to toil, do I exert an effort, that is what I get my reward for in this world. And that's why it specifically says, Shetahei Amelim Batorah. I'm trying to decide what to finish with, with the little time that we have. So much we didn't get to. We'll get to one last idea. One last idea in the time we have left because it connects to behind the beam of tomorrow night. Behind the beam of tomorrow night, what connection could there possibly be? Look towards the end of our parsha. Perch of Zion, Pasuk Aleph. Perch of Zion, Pasuk Aleph. We have the whole Tochacha. We've discussed a lot of Bechu- Good news is we didn't cover a lot of Bechukosai, but go on yutorah.org. Go on rabbiefromgoldberg.org and you can find previous years where we did discuss Bechukosai. We'll end with this. The laws of Erchin. God spoke to Moshe. If a person articulates a vow to Hashem regarding a value of their living being. In other words, you're allowed to say, I'm making a donation. Rabbi, 
I want to make a donation to the shul. Beis HaMikdash, I want to make a donation to the Beis HaMikdash. How much of a donation do you want to make? You couch how much of a donation you want to make based on erchen, based on erech, based on a value. Just like you can offer sacrifices of animals, there are financial gifts that are legislated by a half shekel. Torah here teaches a voluntary monetary pledge based on not a random amount, but based on a person's value. How do you determine someone's value? How do you determine someone's erech? So does it depend on how smart they are? IQ test? How athletic they are? How good looking they are? What kind of memory they have? Are they tall? Are they short? Are they strong? Are they weak? Do they have their hair? How do you decide a person's value? So the Torah says, no. We look at two factors, age and gender. The Torah tells us the amounts you'd be obligated if you give your pledge based on those two factors, age and gender. The question is the following, and we end with this. I know we're at an hour. Give me two more minutes. Indulge with me. I'll make it worth your while. The question is this. Why is this here? Parshat Bechukosai overwhelmingly is about the Tokha, the harsh rebuke, the graphic description of what happens to the Jewish people. The consequences, if we don't listen to God, it really belongs earlier in Vayikra. We talked about sacrifices, and we talked about donations, and we talked about the gifts in the Mishkan. Why is Erechen specifically here? Why is it here? Why is it here? So when I gave this drush I'm going to share with you right now, I told the story which I want to tell you because it relates to our guest on behind the beam of tomorrow night. The, uh, there's a shul in the heart of Yerushalayim that was started by Rav Arya Levin, the great tzaddik of Yerushalayim. His grandson, Rav Benji Levin, is our guest behind the beam of tomorrow night, an amazing individual. He is the rabbi today of that special shul. The shul is called Achtos Yisrael, Achdut Yisrael. It's in the heart of Yerushalayim, right near the central bus station. It is uh, a very special shul. And it is a shul that has an unusual Yeritzite plaque. Uh, it has 498 names. This shul was started by the Etzel and Lachi fighters by the underground, even before the founding of the State of Israel, by those fighters, the Etsy, the Lechi fighters. And uh, there's a Yurtzite plaque that includes 498 names of those who gave their lives when the British occupied Israel and the Arabs were so hostile, and before the Haganah was formed, and they gave their lives trying to, trying to fight, trying to fight. During World War II, the Etzel chose to suspend their fight against the British so they could help the British fight their common enemy, the Germans. You know the history that the Lachi continued, the Loch Mechirut Yisrael, the freedom fighters Lachi did not interrupt, they continued that fight, the Etzel and Lachi united again after, and in the special shul I've been there, if you haven't, you should check it out, you can get a tour from Rebbe Levine, you'll hear him tomorrow night, please God, we'll ask him, he'll talk all about special shul, these Lachi Etzel fighters, the ones his grandfather, the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, Ravari Levine, used to go visit in the prisons, amazing stories. In that shul, there's something very, very unusual. In that shul, there's a small door underneath the bima. And it doesn't hold the Gabbai's handbook. And it doesn't hold some breakaway Kiddush Club ingredients. In the uh, shul, in the Achdus Yisrael shul, there's a small door under the bima, a trap door, that looks like it is Shemus. They left the door and there's Shemus. But underneath the Shemus, there's a trap door. And underneath the trap door is where the underground fighters, the Lachi and the uh, Etzel fighters, kept their guns and their ammunition. And it's not the guns and ammunition that's still there, but you can see that trap door and you can appreciate their sacrifice, their effort, and so on and so forth. So there's an amazing uh, plaque there, as I told you, and it has all these names. And it lists not only the person's name, the place of death. And many times it says the Altalena, those who are on the boat of the Irgun members that was blown up by Yitzchak Rabin, at the Haganah, at Ben-Gurion's command, its own other story, and Menachem Begin didn't respond, he refused to start a civil war. Some of them say not Atalana, some of them say Bakela, that they died in prison, Yerushalayim and Akko, many were hung by the British, 
And they're all in alphabetical order by the first name. It's a very unusual Yeritzai plaque. Why would it be alphabetical order by the first name? Yeritzai plaques are normally alphabetical order by the last name. So it was explained that many of the Etzel Lachi fighters made up false last names. They didn't want the British to have access to their real last name because they didn't want to put their family members at risk or in jeopardy, so they did not use their real last name. So it's in first, the only accurate part we knew about their identity was their first name, and therefore it's in first name. Now there's one name, 400, what did I say, 498 names on the Yurtzai plaque, but there's one that only has one name, Aaron. There's no last name. Why? This Aaron survived the concentration camp and the Nazis and somehow made his way on the boat to Palestine. The British blockade, but somehow his boat made it through. He came off the boat and he met with young Jewish men. And he told them that he had been involved in the Beitar movement in Europe. And they introduced themselves as members of the Etzel uh, movement, of Metzel, members of Etzel, which shared the same philosophy. They apologized, they couldn't spend more time. They said they had a mission they had to go carry out. So Aaron, fresh off the boat, a skeleton who survived systematic attempt to kill him, fresh off the boat, doesn't say, good luck on your mission, I would like to start a new life. I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to sit under a tree and read a book. He says, fresh off the boat, this Aaron. He says, I want to help. They said, can you shoot a gun? He says, shoot a gun. Look at me. I can't even lift a gun. Skeleton, a survivor right off the boat from Europe. But he says, I could drive a car. So they said, you'll drive. Now the mission went bad. And tragically, this Aaron driving the car, driving the mission was killed. He was killed. So why is first name only there? So come back to our question. Why place Erchen after the Tochacha and not earlier in Sefer Vayikra? It really belonged much earlier. So the Kliyakar explains, a beautiful Kliyakar in our parsha. we end with this. That after going through suffering and tragedy and loss, the response is to donate and to give and to sacrifice. It would be so easy to conclude the exact opposite. You could say, what's it all worth? Six million people were murdered and killed. I'm not going to sacrifice and I'm not going to take risks and I'm not going to make an effort because what does it even matter? 45 can be trampled to death, supposedly, or there to celebrate the Yeretzad of Shem Yechai and Meiron, the response could be, I'm giving up on life. The response could be, there's no value to life. The response could be, there's no meaning to anything. Says Rav Chaim Dov Keller, Zatzal Rosh Hashiv of Tells of Chicago, he says, no, the Torah, every time you might be tempted to give up on life, reminds us the value of life. In Parshas Noach, we're told about the flood, and right afterwards, the Torah tells us, Shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam, damo yishafech. Right after the flood, where all of humanity is wiped out, and I might have thought there's no value to life, Torah says there's a prohibition of murder. In Parsha Shoftim, Torah says when you go out to war, fight the enemies. And what law comes right afterwards? Egla Arufa. The Torah in Shoftim is telling us the laws of war. You might think, I go fight war, what value is there to life? So the Torah reminds us there's a law of Egla Arufa. When you find somebody who was killed and you don't know the murderer, that value of life is inestimable. And so too in our Parsha, after the unspeakable and unthinkable description of human suffering and loss, what do we read after the Tochacha? Specifically by design, we read the laws of Erchen, the value that we each have, and our capacity to pledge ourselves to the community and to our people, to not turn inward, but to be continue to be concerned for others. Erchen, to take and make a vow, a pledge, to give our whole selves to the Jewish people. That's our answer. It's our answer to Noach, and it's our answer to, um, to Parsha Shof, to go to war, and it's our answer to the Tochacha. It was this Aaron's answer. They didn't even know his last name. He came off the boat, he had given it all, but he dedicated his erech, his whole essence, his whole being, his whole value right away. He dedicated again to the Jewish people and paid the ultimate price. They didn't even know his last name and that's why it's not on the memorial board. All it could say is Aaron. That's how, the, only the little that we knew about him. Erechen appears here just like every time in the Torah we encounter death, 
there is a reminder about life. And I think this is very timely, not only because 9 o'clock tomorrow night, Rav Benji Levine, the current rabbi of the Achdut Yisrael Shul, where this plaque hangs, but coming off of the Meiron tragedy, our answer is Erchen, to devote and dedicate ourselves and our value. Our answer is not to say life is meaningless and purposeless and there is no value to life. Our answer is there is the greatest value and we have to devote and dedicate our value to making the world a better place. Thank you for staying with me a little bit late today. Wishing everyone will see you. First of all, if you don't yet subscribe, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. When you subscribe, you'll be notified in real time every time we go live. If you're listening to the podcast, please like and rate. If you'd like to sponsor a future shear, email lee at brsonline.org, lee at brsonline.org. Thank you to our sponsors. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.